Hey there, you're listening to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. If you'd like to find out more information, you can go to campusbiblestudy.org. Ephesians 5, the whole chapter. Um, so I'll give you a moment to find that in your Bibles. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of a disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully how you, then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband." Good evening. 
Welcome. It's nice to see you at church uh, and nice to see some visitors. Welcome. It's really nice to have you here. As Bill said, we love God, so we love his word and we want to listen to what he's got to say. And so that's what we're doing at the moment. We've just read from this great passage. We're going to do a bit of thinking about it as well. We want to listen well. And so uh, that's what we're going to do for the next little while. So um, let's pray and ask God to help us understand this part of his word and understand time uh, in general. So please pray with me. Our Father, we're really thankful that we can uh, gather together and listen to what you've got to say to us about time. Please uh, help us to understand your word, we pray, so that we might know how to live in these days in which you've placed us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you noticed that we sometimes like to take little bits of good advice and give them almost biblical authority? Have you noticed that? One of the classics where this happens is in the United States. It's the little phrase, God helps those who help themselves. Now, it's, it's a great little phrase, God helps those who help themselves. And it, it sounds very American, doesn't it? It sounds like the kind of thing that Americans could get behind. A few years ago, um, 53% of Americans surveyed strongly agreed to the statement, the Bible teaches that God helps those who help themselves. Unfortunately, the Bible doesn't teach that. Uh, I don't think the Bible even teaches anything like that. I wonder whether the phrase, cleanliness is next to godliness, uh, has taken on a little bit of kind of quasi-biblical significance um, in the time of COVID. The, The first recorded use of that phrase, cleanliness is next to godliness, was actually in a sermon. It was first preached by John Wesley in 1778, Now, we think that he might have been influenced by Sir Francis Bacon because he wrote something similar about 170 years earlier in 1605. Let me tell you what Frankie Bacon wrote. Cleanness of body was ever esteemed to proceed from a due reverence to God, to society and to ourselves. So you can see how uh, Wesley might have grabbed it and turned it into cleanliness. Cleanliness is next to godliness. And look, I guess throughout the ages, life in London had its fair share of epidemics and pandemics that required a bit of hand sanitizer or the 17th century equivalent. And perhaps with COVID, we're back into the time zone where cleanliness is next to godliness might be slipping into sermons a little bit more, might be back as a, as a biblical, quasi-biblical authority. But can you see the problem When these proverbs, these non-biblical proverbs, take on a kind of a biblical authority, there's a bit of a problem, isn't there? Because really what we're doing is we're dressing up our own priorities with kind of a little bit more clout, with a bit of biblical authority to try to really get people to do what we think they should do. That's a problem, isn't it? I wonder whether there's something like that in time management as well. Maybe something about time management might have taken on this quasi-biblical kind of significance. I wonder whether we've actually come to believe that efficiency is next to godliness. Do you think that's possible? I wonder whether deep down we actually think that efficiency is more godly than inefficiency. I could give you lots of kind of quasi-biblical arguments to support the proposition that efficiency is more godly than inefficiency. Let me give you a couple. If you are efficient, you can do more good things for God. That'd be a good one, wouldn't it? Uh, How about efficiency means you can use every minute God blesses you with more productively? 
Sounds biblical, doesn't it? Uh, being efficient with your time means that you are not wasting precious Christian resources. See, I could, I could give you a hundred of them that sound biblical, but they're not. They sound so convincing, and I wonder whether deep down most of us actually believe it. And if efficiency is next to godliness, then I'm actually one of the winners. And my poor wife, Jenny, is one of the losers. Now, I don't, I don't mean to make you feel bad, Jen, but um, I'm just by nature an efficient person, and Jen is by nature creative <laughs> with her use of time. Is that, is that a good way to put it? Yeah, let's, let's leave it at that. It, it would be so easy to think that my natural efficiency is more godly than Jen's less efficient approach to life. But what about all the suffering people that Jen has the patience to sit with and chat with for hours after church? And what about the, the hurting people that Jen keeps patiently caring for when I would just move on? And the discussions with our kids when, when they need time and they need to talk things through and I'm always too quick to close them down because I've got other important, efficient things to move on to. They sound like fairly inefficient things to do, but they're absolutely godly things to do, aren't they? Have we bought the lie that efficiency is next to godliness? Is it possible that our quest for time management efficiency is actually harmful and dangerous? to things that the Bible says are really important. Now, in our first talk last week, we saw that Jesus seemed to be almost deliberately inefficient at time management. And we also saw that he spoke much more about understanding the time than using the time efficiently. But are you still thinking that deep down, efficiency must be an important Christian virtue? Perhaps your mind has already jumped to something the Apostle Paul said about time. See, Jesus may not have said anything about time efficiency, but surely the Apostle Paul does in that passage we just read. And surely you noticed it on the way through. Let me point your attention back to it. Chapter 5, Ephesians, verses 15 to 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Surely that's got to be a verse that says efficiency is next to godliness. Does this verse sanctify efficient time management? Many Christians on the internet seem to think so. We need to have a closer look at Ephesians 5, don't we? Let's do it. We're at point one, making the best use of the time. Now, you, you might know that there's a really interesting Greek word hiding behind our English versions in this phrase. The verse literally says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, redeeming the time. Redeeming the time. But what does it mean to redeem the time? There's the kind of question you want to have a good chat with the person next to you about, isn't it? Let's put it up on the screen. What do you think it means to redeem the time? This will get us thinking, this will get us talking. Take 30 seconds with the person next to you, see what they think, go for it. Let's have a think about this together. Redeeming the time, what's it mean? What could it possibly mean? Well, even the evangelical commentators that I most respect explain this verse in terms of time management. The word is literally about buying something back. It's what you do when you've pawned your rings down at cash converters 
and you suddenly come into a bit of cash to buy them back. And because the word is literally about buying something back, the commentators say that this verse must be about buying back time because time is short in the last days. They say it might be about trying to gain time or to make the most of the time, snapping up every opportunity that comes along. Now, the people who interpret the verse in this way, they are the commentators that I most respect. So they're probably right. But this interpretation doesn't sit well with me. Because it just seems to fit so nicely into our modern Western view of life that highly values efficient time management and finding ways to stuff more good things into our already cluttered lives. Even more than just buying something back, this word in the Bible is about redeeming things out of bad situations. See, that cash converters, that's a dodgy place for your rings to hang out. It's a bad place. You don't want them there longer than they need to be there. So redeeming them is about purchasing them, not just purchasing them back, but purchasing them out of a bad place and back into a safe place. I want you to see here, um, well, how the word is used in the Bible. So the, 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 this redeem word, it's used twice in the book of Galatians and I think both of them <coughs> help us understand the bad place aspect of redemption. Let's put them up on the screen. How far can I wander without moving out of shot? I'm fine. Excellent. Uh, Christ redeemed us, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ redeemed us, where? From the curse of the law. Let's go to the next one, Galatians 4 verse 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. These two verses are both about Christians. You can see that, can't you? <laughs> People who've been saved by Jesus. They were purchased out of a bad situation. And that bad situation was being under the curse of the law, God's law, that condemned us to death and judgment. I want you to see here that redeeming is not just getting more of something. It's not just about making the most of something. It's not even about trying to gain something. They are, both, both these verses are about be, something being purchased out of a bad situation. That's how the word is used in the Bible. And that helps us with Ephesians 5. Because Paul gives us the reason why God's people need to redeem time and it's because of a bad situation. Can you see it there? Can you see why God's people are to redeem the time? Because the days are evil. There's the bad situation that time needs to be redeemed out of. And that's what the first half of the chapter is all about. Warning Christians to keep away from the kind of evil that gets committed in the evil days. And as we read about the evil, we can see that, I, th I think you'll see, not much has changed in 2,000 years since, since this passage was written. Our days are still evil. As I sat working on this talk and writing this talk back in April, in the, kind of in the middle of lockdown... 
a news bulletin popped into my news feed that just literally, as I was writing the talk, it popped up and it just illustrated it perfectly. So let me show you on the screen. Yes, criminals were stealing toilet paper. And can I draw your attention to, on the next slide, the, the, the sentence under the photo, police say that an employee in the Auburn supermarket had been threatened with a knife. This is armed robbery for toilet paper in the middle of lockdown. Evil days. I don't think I need to convince you. Clearly, evil days are the reason why God's people need to redeem the time. But we're still left with our question, aren't we? What does it mean to redeem the time? How do you redeem time? Well, we need to keep looking. Our little phrase, that little redeeming phrase, time phrase in verse 16 actually hangs off the command in verse 15, doesn't it? Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Redeeming the time is about walking wisely and carefully in the way we live as God's people in the evil days. But we're still not quite getting what it means to redeem the time. So we need to keep looking. Now, step back for a moment from Ephesians 5. Have you stepped back? Have you, have you moved back from your Bible? I want you to look at the whole chapter. If you look at the whole chapter, where does your eye get drawn as you look at this whole chapter? I reckon it might be towards that little poem right in the middle of the chapter. It's a weird little poem just sort of sitting there, different to everything around it, right in the middle. That poem comes right before the two verses that we've just been looking at. What is the poem about? And does it help us with our question at all? Have a read of it. Um, for any, uh, therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, this verse looks like it's an Old Testament quote, doesn't it? It looks like it should be an Old Testament quote, but the problem is we can't find anything that looks close to it in the Old Testament. Perhaps, some people say, it was a poem in the early church, but we can't even know that for sure. What we can know, very clearly, is that the Apostle Paul has given us this little poem, whether he borrowed it from somewhere or whether he wrote it himself, we can know that he's given us this poem that is all about... Did you notice what it's all about? It's all about resurrection. That's interesting. It's interesting because of the way resurrection came up in last week's talk, that time was so significant and resurrection was, was so, so much a part of it. And so I'm going to give you another chance to have a quick chat with the person next to you because... I'm intrigued about how resurrection might be connected to the best use of the time. How is resurrection connected to making the best use of the time? 30 seconds with the person next to you. See what they think. Go for it. Okay. Are you feeling like I'm making you work hard tonight? Yeah, great. You love it. Oh, it's good for you, I'm sure. So let, we'll keep working hard. In a chapter that's all about how Christians are to live wisely in a dark, evil day's world, we suddenly have a stark reminder about resurrection and light. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? So it's time to think about two time horizons. We're at point two, two time horizons. And as we think about evil days, resurrection and wise living in the light, it won't surprise you that our favourite diagram helps us a lot, will it? 
won't surprise you at all. We're going to draw it up here on the screen. This first little line, this little horizontal line, that is the timeline of world history. Now, as you know, Jesus entered into our world history. He became a man. He was born as a man. He, he, he lived amongst us. He grew up. He died for us. And he rose on our behalf as well. And as he rose, we saw last week that he began, he, he, he ascended to the throne in heaven and began the new age of his kingdom. Now, this age is going to last forever. It's an eternal age. But he has promised that he will return to judge the world and that will be the end of the old age forever. Now, where do you and I fit on this diagram? It's pretty clear, isn't it? We fit somewhere between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. You're going, that's, that's just boringly easy, Carl. But do you realise you've only located yourself on the horizontal axis? What out on the vertical axis? Where are you on the vertical axis? Now, um, the Bible calls this line, this time, the last days. In a sense, Ephesians 5 calls it the evil days. But where are you vertically in this period? That's the question. Um, turning your Bibles to um, Ephesians 2 for a moment, just back a couple of chapters. Ephesians 2, I want to read verses 4 to 6. Verses that you've probably read before. Ephesians 2, from verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. And it was by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Can you see that these verses are speaking in past tense about what God has already done for people who are united to Jesus by faith? These verses are saying that all people who are united with Jesus have been raised with Jesus and have a place in the heavenly realms right now. And these verses are talking about it as a past tense action, not a future action that you're still waiting for. So right now, you still live in this old age of suffering, sin and death. You still live in this old age of uh, toilet paper shortages and viruses and crime. You still very much live in this old, broken world. But if you trust Jesus, the Bible is very clear that you have also been right now raised with Christ. You are where he is if you are united with him. His identity you share if you trust in him. And where he is right now is raised in the heavenly realms in the new age. In the language of last week's talk, because the resurrected Son of Man has already walked into heavenly, the heavenly throne room, has already established his kingdom, people who are united with him by faith have, in a sense, walked in with him. So the Bible can rightly say that Christians are right now citizens of heaven, seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. That means... 
If you trust Jesus, right now you live in two ages at the same time. You live in the overlap of the ages, we would call it. If we can uh, just put that up on the screen. Sorry, Hannah. Oh, no. Hey. I'll let Hannah do that in her own time. And so it's, don't, don't make the mistake of thinking you're, you're, up, you're in, raised only in the new age. You're still stuck in this old, suffering, broken, fallen world. Physically, you are here. But at the same time, the Bible says, if you like, it's not great, but spiritually, it's not, that's not a great way of putting it, but raised with Christ. Because where he is, you are, if you are united with him. And I wonder whether it's this vertical axis that is actually the key to understanding how to redeem the time. Remember, this redeem word is about purchasing something out of a bad situation. The bad situation in our passage is very clear. It's the days are evil. That is the clear reality in the present age that we physically live in. So redeeming the time is not about making more time or buying time in the, in the horizontal, if you like. Redeeming the time is about moving things vertically on the diagram. Time that could be wasted doing evil deeds of the evil age is redeemed by doing the kind of deeds that suit the new age of the new kingdom. That is how you redeem time. Turn it from the old evil works to doing the new beautiful works of the new age that you've been raised with Christ into. So just to repeat, Redeeming the time is about using the time for the works of the new age rather than wasting the time doing the works of the old evil age. And if we think making the most of the time is about efficiency and fitting more in, then I think we are stuck in the horizontal. And under that view, you could just keep stuffing more activity into the horizontal and keep stuffing more in and you can fill your life more and more. But I, I wonder whether that will be good new kingdom stuff or whether you'll be stuffing in some bad stuff as well. See, as you get busier and more stressed, what, what are you like? Because I know what I'm like when I'm busier and more stressed. All the stuff that more suits the evil days starts coming out. I start being grumpy. I start, well... Struggling with all kinds of things, impatience, anger, selfishness, envy, lust, the list could go on. If redeeming the time is not about efficiency, not about stuffing more good and bad activities into the available horizontal time, if redeeming the time is actually rescuing the time from the evil deeds and using the time for the deeds more appropriate to the new age, well then, redeeming the time... Making the most of the time is all about the vertical. And it starts with getting our heads right. It starts with getting our thinking in the right vertical zone. Up on the screen, Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If then you've been raised with Christ, same logic, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. When your minds are being shaped by the new age, as God does his good work in us by his word, 
and by his spirit, that is redeeming the time from the evil deeds of the evil age. And so, there's the key. There's the key to redeeming the time. It's not stuffing more into the horizontal. It's changing your actions and activities from the old age evil to the new age beautiful. There it is. Now, as I was talking through this sermon with, um, with my ministry trainees, the guys I train, Ross and Josh, earlier this year, um, Ross suddenly put on a thoughtful look and then he said something profound. He said, you only need efficiency when the time is limited. And I think he might be right. Have a look at the diagram again. Where is the time limited? It's interesting, isn't it? The time is limited in the old age, and I suspect that's a blessing. The evil will not last forever. There is the grace of God limiting the damage in these evil days. So this old age, in a sense, is, is dead-end time. And if you only live in this present age of evil days, then your time is limited, and maybe you should work at stuffing as much as you can in, because the end is coming. Your time, well if you only live in the old age, is limited. But what about if you live in the overlap of the ages, you've been raised with Christ, your time? Your time, just like your life, is now eternal. You have all the time in the world. You redeem the time in the overlap every time you put the sin of the evil days to death and live out the good works fitting for the new age. So making the most of your time, it's about using your time for new age living rather than wasting your time in old age evil. So how are we going to do it? We're at point three. How do you make the best use of the time? Now, what we've tried to do tonight is let the text speak for itself. We've dug in and we've dug around, but we've really tried just to listen to, the, to what the Bible's saying. Rather than import our own time management ideas and interpretations, we've tried to listen. If we've done a good job of listening, there should be coherence in the passage, shouldn't there? And there should be coherence in the book. It should, it should hang together well if we've done a good job. So have we listened well? Does our interpretation of verse 15 and 16 fit in with the rest of the chapter? Well, let's have one last sweep through the whole chapter under this idea of making the most of the time. The chapter starts out in what I'm going to call citizen time advice. If you want to redeem time as a citizen of the new age, it's going to impact the way you continue to live as a citizen in the old age. And so making the most of the time as a citizen means, from verse 1 and 2, imitating your God by walking in self-sacrificial love towards others and serving others even in this old evil age. Making the most of your time from verse 3 means, means living out in the old age the sexual lifestyle of the new age rather than conforming to the impurity of the evil days making the most of the time in verse 4 means even the way you speak your speech is shaped by the new age of Christ's kingdom rather than by the old age of evil days and have a look again at verses 5 and 6 let me read to you verses 5 and 6 for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. 
That sounds a bit scary, doesn't it? Sounds a bit scary. Do those verses sound like a threat or a warning to Christians? Do they sound like a threat or a warning to you if you're a follower of Jesus? Here's the last opportunity to have a little chat with the person next to you. And again, I hope I get you thinking here. Are these verses a threat for Christians? 30 seconds, go for it. Let's have a think about this together. It's uh, it's a little scary, isn't it? And when most Christians read these verses, they do, I think, read them like a threat or a warning. Don't do the bad stuff or God will punish you and you'll miss out on the eternal kingdom. Does that sound like the way God would speak to people that he's already saved by grace and already raised and seated with Christ? Doesn't really, does it? Does that interpretation give you any security in Christ? Not really, I don't think. If I stuff up really badly, will God kick me out? How bad do I need to be to miss out? Could I really screw up and ruin my whole salvation? Can you see that I'm now thinking about me and what I've done to keep me in? rather than Jesus and what he's done? God doesn't bring about new age godly living by threats and warnings. We've just worked out how God brings about new age godly living. God brings it about by graciously raising his people in Christ, seating us, if you like, with Christ in the heavenly realms and then encouraging us to live out the lifestyle of the new kingdom rather than the old one. Isn't that how God encourages Christians into the kind of living that he loves? Verses 5 and 6 are not a threat. They are a statement about the very reality that we've been speaking about in this talk. People who live only in the evil days of the old age, of course are going to live out the actions of evil. If they're not part of the new eternal age they of course will not inherit the kingdom. And sadly, the judgment of God is coming upon them unless they are saved through Jesus. They don't have any place in the new kingdom, so sadly, their behaviour is perfectly in line with their membership of the old evil age. But if you are in Christ, that is not you. If you are in Christ, you've been rescued from that sad reality by the precious blood of Jesus. You've been raised to be part of the new age of Jesus' kingdom, given a new status with Christ, new citizenship in that new age, and you are now, therefore, seeking to live consistently with your new status in the new age. You are trying to make the most of your time. And you know what? You're going to fail from time to time. You are going to stuff up. Sin is still going to be a hard reality in your life. But that sin does not dislodge you or take away your security because you are seated in the heavenlies with Christ and your position there depends on him, not on you. Verses 7 and 8 confirm this, that it's not a warning, a threat aimed at Christians. It is clearly 
talking about those who are stuck only in the old age of evil days that are on view. Christians need to be wary, we're told in verses 7 and 8, of too close an association with them because we want to use our time for completely different purposes to the way they want to use the time. Verses 9 to 13 reminds us that the difference is light and darkness. Sadly, people who only live in the old age of evil days are stuck in the darkness of sin and rebellion against God. But if you've been raised with Christ, the light has dawned in your life. You now have the privilege of being able to live in the light, live out the lifestyle of the light. Jesus has raised you from the dead, verse 14, so that you could live in the light of the new age and you will make the most of the time by living the actions of the light. The poem about resurrection then moves us into two key areas. Uh, sorry, two, uh, sorry, into our two key verses. But then we come out the other side into what I'm calling corporate time advice. We've had citizen time advice. We're now moving into corporate time advice. We Christians need to keep making the most of the time by encouraging one another. That's what verses 18 to 20 are all about. Let's have a look at 18 to 20. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The old age drunken behaviour... It's to be put away for the new age, spirit-filled living. Now, this is another verse where we often import our own ideas about what it means to be spirit-filled. We need to be careful of that. The key to understanding the work of the spirit is to not separate the spirit from his sword. The sword of the spirit, you're going to come across it in chapter 6. It's going to be clearly explained that the Spirit's main tool, main weapon, if you like, in the spiritual battle is the Word of God. Try not to separate the Spirit from His sword. Keep the two together. This command to be filled with the Spirit is about our corporate gatherings like we're doing right here. And it's about our corporate gatherings being filled with the Spirit as we speak the Spirit's Word to each other. Being filled with the Spirit is all about the corporate speaking of God's Word as we address one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs and whatever other way we can speak God's Word to one another. Being filled with the Spirit is all about being filled with His Word. Don't separate the Spirit from His sword. So if we want to make it most of the time when we gather together corporately, we need to speak the language of the new age. The language of the new age? The spirit-filled words of scripture, which fill our corporate gatherings with the spirit. It's by that corporate speaking. It's not just me doing it to you. It's you doing it to each other. It's you doing it to me after the, after the talk tonight. It's, it's us all speaking the spirit's word to each other. As we do that, the Spirit will grow us in our understanding of the new age so that we can keep living out the lifestyle appropriate to the new age. And that brings us finally to the strange time advice. The passages about headship and submission that start in chapter 5, 21. You know they flow straight on from our section about redeeming the time, don't they? 
straight on. Have you realised that one of the best ways to redeem the time, to live out the righteous works of the new age, is to appropriately submit to appropriate leadership? And conversely, on the other hand, it should not surprise us that those who haven't been raised with Christ are going to struggle with these patterns of leadership and submission. Submission gets a bad rap in our world today and that shouldn't surprise us because it's a beautiful new kingdom attitude. People who live purely in the old evil days will not like it, will not perhaps understand it. We don't have time to dwell on the beauty of loving sacrificial leadership and submission but I want to encourage you to trust God's word on this one. Christian leadership and submission is a beautiful facet of new kingdom relationships, whether they're in the Christian home or in the Christian church. So strangely, Christ-like submission in appropriate circumstances and Christ-like leadership in appropriate circumstances are two of the ways that Christians can redeem the time can make the most of the time as we live in this old age as citizens of the new age. Making the most of the time, redeeming the time, it's not about being more efficient. Making the most of the time, redeeming the time, it's about being more godly. As we let our citizenship in heaven shape every aspect of life here now, as we still live in these challenging, evil days. I'm going to pray, then we're going to sing, and then you can ask some questions. Let's pray. Our Father God, thanks so much for uh, this amazing chapter and for helping us understand it a little bit better tonight. Thanks for our Lord Jesus, who's done everything we need to be secure with you in heaven. Please help that security shape the way we live now. We pray, Lord, that we will make the most of the time, we will redeem the time, by living in godliness rather than living in evil. Please help us to do this, to honour our Lord Jesus as he deserves. Amen. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out at Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.